Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So a little bit more news about my record that I'm putting out under the moniker Havana Swim Club. The third and final preparatory single, if you want to call it that, is out. It's called For Blake. And those of you who have listened to this show, um, especially patrons who were involved in the Facebook group, you will recognize that name, Blake. That's Blake Beaver. He was a member of our group. He passed away from... COVID and cancer medication complications at age 22, uh, around the time that I was finishing up this song. It's the one that's playing right now. And so I named it after him. Uh, And this is the last single, as I said, to come out before the album, which comes out a week from Friday uh, on every service and everywhere, you know, Spotify, all that. Um, I don't don't want to make a huge deal out of it. I know it's pretty distinct from this podcast. And just because you like The way that I interview people about issues of faith and psychology does not necessarily mean that you want to listen to my instrumental indie dance music. That's fine. Um, But if you do, you can pre-save the album on Spotify. That link is in the show notes, as well as a link to um, the current singles on Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube. So that's all. Now let's get into this excellent conversation about a phenomenal, huge study. Rebecca and Joanna, thank you guys so much for joining me. I am really excited about this conversation. 
not just because it's about purity culture and sex, which is always interesting and challenging to talk about, but also because we bypassed the figurehead, the main author blogger, Rebecca, your mother, mm-hmm. Sheila, we bypassed her altogether. And I went straight to the co-authors who did the research. Yep. And I mm-hmm. think that that was the right move. And it will be borne out by the quality of this conversation. <laughs> uh, I'm excited about that. So can you briefly describe so people know what I'm talking about, your jobs working with Sheila Ray Gregoire, Gregoire, if I'm saying that correctly. Yes, you did say Gregoire correctly. Yeah, I'll go first because I'm her daughter, Rebecca Gregoire Lindenback. I'm kind of the project manager on the site. I work with creating courses um, that are based in research to uh, help people improve their sex life, frankly. Um, so yeah, I do work with my mom and we talk about sex and we help people have better sex. And that is what I do. So we're a bit of a weird wow. bunch just off the top. You can tell. But really what uh, my job is, is I work on the content side and I help create that and I help with the podcast that she has. And so you kind of, if you're on the To Love, Honor and Vacuum website, you'll see me flitting around there, but I'm mainly behind the scenes. Cool. And Joanna, what about you? Yeah. So I, um, Sheila offered me a job when I was about six weeks postpartum after my first daughter was born. And I had defended my master's thesis four days before she was born. Um, so I was super burned out and done and very happy to take a break from academia to work for my friend's marriage blog. And it was one of those things where one thing led to another. And now I essentially am a research coordinator doing the epidemiology stuff that I love and applying it to Christian marriage material. So awesome. So now I'd like you guys to briefly describe this book that you co-wrote with your mom, Rebecca, called The Great Sex Rescue. Yeah. So the book was born out of a conversation that I had with Sheila after Sheila had written up a bunch of blog posts on love and respect in January of 2019. And the response to those posts was so staggering that suddenly we found ourselves doing a research project on the fly because we just got inundated with stories from women who reported having had abuse be facilitated by the book, um, whose abusive husbands used the arguments in the book to hurt them. And it was quite disheartening. Wait, what is, sorry, what is this book? This is like a, a popular book at the time or something? Oh, yeah. It's one of, it still sells huge numbers of copies. Love and Respect. It's by Emerson Egrich. Okay. I didn't realize that that was the name of the book because I am mercifully not embroiled in evangelical sex literature. Uh, no, we, we are. We know. You are <laughs> no, a blessed you man. Be. You have yes, been blessed. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> It's a hazard of the job for you guys. Okay, so love and respect is a very popular. It's still number one, or it's still mm-hmm. very highly read mm-hmm. and stuff. Okay, yeah, Got it. yeah. So we, Sheila, read through that book and then wrote up the posts. We ended up doing a thematic analysis quickly, and then we did a additional uh, thematic analysis and sent that report going through all of the stories of women that we found to focus on the family because they support love and respect and promote it quite heavily. And we said, well, surely they will listen to us. Sheila's been on their show three times. Surely they will say, oh my goodness, this is terrible. This book is facilitating abuse. We need to edit it. We figured that was, you know, a fairly reasonable ask. You poor, sweet, naive Joanna. Yeah, we were so sweet and so naive. (laughs) 
And so we didn't hear back because, of course, we didn't hear back. And I was just so rattled by the experience. And I felt that there were health effects being caused by evangelical beliefs. And one day I was sitting on my couch chatting with Sheila on FaceTime and the three of us are on FaceTime with each other constantly. And I said something about maybe going back and doing my doctorate just so that I can prove that there are health effects being caused by evangelical beliefs. And she said, you know, you could do your doctorate, but why don't we just write a book instead? It'll be more fun. And, um, Hence the project. Yeah. And so we decided that if a couple hundred, like hundreds of women were enough to ignore, right? Focus on the family could brush off hundreds of women, but we didn't think they could brush off 20,000. So we surveyed 20,000 women. And this was a long survey. Yeah. So this is the number that caught my eye. I don't, I think that your publicist or whatever emailed me about this. And I I get emails like that, you know, about books coming Mm out. Not, not every day, but fairly regularly. And I look through them usually and consider them. And I was like, they surveyed how many women? Yep. 22,000. Mm-hmm. So, but, okay, but hold on. I'm, I want to, because there's a lot to cover here, I sort of have a an order I want to go in. So mm-hmm. I want to I wanna, I wanna save the your data until we've actually got the groundwork from within the culture, Great. right? So mm-hmm. what? where's the starting place that love and respect basically has put us in? And then from there, we'll figure out what, what you guys exactly. did. So th- there's one thing I do want to, I want to actually ask you guys at the beginning, because it is one of the talking points, or it's not a talking point, rather, it's one of the, one of the first statements in the book, in the introduction is that we already know from other social science data that overall Christians do have like, better sex and happier marriages than non-religious people. And then you go on to give the results of your survey, which, you know, are sort of like, except all these massive exceptions. Right. But can we do a little bit about that? Cause I'm actually not really up on that general social science research. What is sort of like some main consensus points in the research about the kind of sex and marriages that Christians have in general? When we look at social science research about religiosity and marital satisfaction, in general, you just find when religious people are religious, they actually just tend to have better marriages. They get divorced at lower rates. They tend to rate their marriages as happier. Uh, They tend to rate their sex lives as better. They tend to rate more satisfaction with marriage and sex life. They tend to pretty much every measure that we have of marital satisfaction and happiness. Frankly, religious married folk do better than non-religious folk. And that makes sense, right? You get married and you're with someone who has shared beliefs. You have shared purpose in life, shared passions. It makes sense that you, you know, do better. And additionally, religious people tend to have a code of ethics that relates to fidelity and, uh, you know, valuing marriage and making marriage a priority, which obviously people who are not religious have, you are able to have that, but it's more of an expected and normalized thing. Like you want to get married more often if you're religious, right? Because frankly, that's how you get to have sex. So marriage is seen as a lot more positive versus in non-religious circles. So that's kind of what the research has found overall. And Christians are obviously in that. More religious Christians tend to have um, happier marriages, better sex lives. But uh, that doesn't mean that we have perfect marriages and perfect sex right. lives. And one of the one of the big asterisks there is that all of this is self-report data, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because you're not, uh, I don't know, measuring orgasmic 
uh, you know, whatever. Like, you're not getting in there with an fMRI and like measuring the uh, oxytocin or whatever. So you're you're relying on Mm self-report. And one of the things that I've read that's an an interesting sort of counterpoint to some of this self-report data or or method is that you know there there can be a kind of stockholm syndrome in various situations like amish people for instance experience a very different kind of a life but mostly they stay amish and they would rate their experience as being amish as like not restrictive mm-hmm. <laughs> but like objectively it's restrictive so there you know there that's a, an extreme example to prove it but so there are some places for those cracks Maybe what we might call cracks in the self-report. I don't know. I'm I'm just like bad with analogies today. The stucco. It's cracks in the self-report stucco. And like you guys get the emails from the people who are living in those cracks in the stucco. That's exactly it. That turned out to not be so bad. That was an okay analogy. Joanna, anything else to add about this overall picture before we start talking about the these big books in the evangelical culture? I think Rebecca's Absolutely right. I think the one thing that I would add is that research since the 1970s has shown that conservative Christian women experience higher rates of primary sexual pain, which means that they're experiencing sexual pain that's not related to childbirth. And there have been lots of hypotheses about why um, sexual shame being chief among them. But as far as uh, research specifically looking at conservative Christian women and figuring out why they're experiencing higher rates of pain, we have not been able to identify other research um, looking at that particular question. And yet we're going to talk about that today because you have some ideas. So, but let's start out with the background. So this is very cool. Uh, You talked about, you did a thematic analysis of that one book, Love and Respect, as part of these blog posts and and getting these responses. But then you actually went and you found the 15 most popular resources on sex and marriage in the evangelical subculture. And you did thematic analyses of all 15 and compared them. So my first question is, how did you determine, this is like a kind of a nerd question. How'd you figure out which were the 15 most popular? Frankly, Amazon. We looked nice. at the bestsellers on Amazon. So what we did is we looked at Christian marriage and Christian sex bestsellers. And uh, we just kind of looked at a bunch of different lists. And then we found, in general, what the best ones are, right? There's no definitive list yeah. anywhere that says what is the number one bestseller. So, I mean, everyone knows five love languages at the very top. Um, and then it's generally considered to be love and respect right underneath of it. Um, and we just went through the list like that. Of the bestsellers that we looked at, we didn't actually analyze all of them on our rubric because some of them just didn't talk about sex. We were really only right. talking about sex, right? Five level languages, you won't see it in our book or on our rubric because didn't really say anything about sex. It didn't say enough for us to really analyze yeah. it. So, but yeah, we wanted to look after we had our eyes open with love and respect and realized just how problematic some of these messages are, we take this idea of, like we said, there's major gaps in the research currently where, like you said, we don't know where those cracks in the wall are, right? We know there are cracks, but no one studied where they are yet. Not really. And then we have our one of our best-selling marriage books being told to us by hundreds of women that it facilitated harm or abuse or just distrust or all sorts of horrible things in their marriages. And we were wondering, what if it's not just love and respect? What if this is endemic of a larger issue? And so we wanted to frankly do our research 
And we looked at all of the bestsellers and we wrote out which of the teachings we were seeing over and over again. And then we put them in our survey to see are any of them leading us to have some major, you know, cracks in the wall. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the methodology stuff. I just concluded my own first kind of survey toward my dissertation. And so I've just kind of been living in that world. So thank you for a little bit of that uh, nerd, nerddom, <laughs> nerdery that some listeners will wish they had skipped over. But okay, what are some of these common claims? So you've, you did these uh, thematic analyses and you found the ones that are repeated over and over again. What are they? One really big one is that all men lust. It's every man's battle. You may have heard of the book, Every Man's Battle. I have. It's based on that idea. I read idea. part of it. All men lust. This is the first yeah. one. So essentially that all men are in a kind of constant state of hypervigilance and that the way to avoid lust is to avoid seeing the female form. So the, um, the prescription is to bounce your eyes. Yes, bounce your eyes, right. Yeah, it's not to see women as real people or to avoid sexualizing them in normal life. So, um, for example, you may sexualize breastfeeding. It would be sort of a normal kind of response if you're working under that paradigm. Um, so, yeah, that one was very, very common in the Christian literature. And we found that it was correlated with all sorts of bad stuff. Um, another one was that a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. And that's often backed up with the verses in 1 Corinthians 7 about a wife's body doesn't belong to her, but also to her husband and a husband's body belongs to his wife. And um, that right. gets misapplied. But conveniently, only the husbands interpret yes. that verse <laughs> in a certain way. <laughs> huh. Well, I guess I should say only the, not always husbands, but only the... Only the partner with higher sex drive would interpret that verse to mean mm -hmm. whenever I'm ready, you need to be a part of that. Well, that's me. something interesting. We can talk about the, the current culture that we were coming from, which is, as we all know, there are women out there who have a higher sex drive than their husbands. But sure, these books right. don't really talk to them. Huh. That was something we really noticed. And we talked about that in our last chapter, which we can get into later. But in terms of the culture that we're coming from, this idea of 1 Corinthians 7, we didn't really hear it applied to wives in terms of wives um, being owed anything for sex. It was only ever husbands being owed. So mm -hmm. this idea of they, people can say, oh, yeah, there are higher drive wives, but our literature just acts like they don't exist other than like a caveat somewhere. And right. that's one thing that we noticed, and we'll, you'll see in a lot of these teachings in our book that we, tear, that we, in essence, help you deconstruct and find a better way forward, is that they're so focused on what are men like, what are women like, what are men like, what are women like, that we forget that, you know, if 70% of men are a certain way, you're getting maximum a B minus. Right. Right? Like if 70% of men are a certain way, and you base your entire book on what men and women are like, then you are aiming top, you're going to get as a B minus. Whereas if we just talk about, you know, healthy dynamics, that can apply no matter who's the higher libido, right? I think 70% is a C minus in America anyway, Rebecca. Yeah, is it yeah. C minus in America? Wow. <laughs> C minus in America. <laughs> I don't know about Canada. You guys are pretty lax up there. <laughs> um, but well, so one one explanation, there's many explanations for that. I, maybe we could kick a couple around. Yeah. One is that there's a self-selection of the kind of men who either read these books or the kind of men whose wives read these books or ask them to or 
a self-selection of the kind of wife. I don't, I don't know. So, so that, that's one. That's probably like the most innocent explanation. Mm-hmm. And so that the market has taught these publishers to only talk about it that way because that's what the audience wants. I feel like there's a more sinister explanation as well, which is, uh, you know, bringing more lens of power into it and sort of like, well, are there men at these publishing companies ultimately making these decisions? And do they have restrictive complementarian theologies? And, you know, so that any or anywhere between those two, there might be other explanations. What do you guys think about what explains that kind of glaring omission? I might get in trouble for this. So what <laughs> what I think whenever I see this <laughs> is frankly that it's just like what you're saying at the beginning, where who reads books? We know from surveys and market data, women read books. When you're buying a marriage book, you know, nine times out of 10, it's going to be a woman, right? Like women are primarily the receivers of the information in these books. And so what has happened is authors know this. Authors know if you're going to write a marriage book, it better be mainly to women, because it doesn't help your audience if it's mainly women to hear all the stuff about what their husbands should be doing if it's just them. Because you want these books to change their marriages. But what if it's all these women whose husbands aren't going to change their marriages because husbands don't read these books? And so you try to give all the women this Or at advice. least whatever you write won't change exactly. their marriage because they're not going to read your book. Thank you. Yeah. They might do something else. Maybe they'll show up at therapy. Yes. Maybe they'll go to a men's group. But they're not going to read the book. Exactly. So the book should be about X, Exactly. Right? Yeah. And I do want to say men are very invested in fixing their marriages. And we talk a lot about that in our book. We have a lot of really great examples from our research of men who really worked and turned their marriages around in amazing ways. And so Mm -hmm. just saying, but these books are all coming from a perspective where when we read them, it's almost like women are being told you're my, you're a man. Really? You can't expect that much from him. Because remember, he's always going to lust. He's going to need your body to be available to him 24-7 in order to not watch pornography and be faithful to you. You, But also, like, you must obey him. And you must be, like, under his authority. And if you ever say anything that makes him feel disrespected, then you're not following your role as a Christian wife. But what kind of view does that have of men? Men who can't handle any sort of criticism, men who can't handle your real emotions, men who can't stay faithful without you putting out every 72 hours. That's such a low view of men. And I think that's why these books are often so focused on just getting men all the sex they can possibly get. Because I honestly think that as an evangelical culture, when we read through these books, the overwhelming feeling that we were left with is, is that really all we expect of men? Like we think men are better than that, frankly. We have more faith in what men are capable of than just to be these walking sex zombies that need to constantly be sedated. And that, I think, Mm. has led into a lot of this emphasis on all women don't want sex and all men do want sex. Because if your only real, you know, response to the sexual sin epidemic of pornography is to say, well, your wife just needs to put out more, then we can't address the higher libido wives because that doesn't. You know, we have to actually talk about... Yeah, it doesn't about, fit that. Yeah, right. we have to actually talk about health then. We can't just talk about these pat answers of just have more sex. And and the books that are for men like Every Man's Battle, mm-hmm. those books have the same assumptions about they men, do. correct? Mm-hmm. It's not like it's not like just the ones that they know the women are going to read have this view. It's like they actually all kind of share the same worldview, we might Completely. say. Yeah, I was really interested recently. I've been working my way through Brene Brown's Daring Greatly as we are getting ready for the book launch because, woo, we are daring greatly. 
you're daring greatly. Yeah, and so I felt like I needed the kick in the pants. And it was fascinating to read because she was talking about what the shame points are for men and for women. And for men, the shame point tends to be their ability to uh, get sex. Hmm. And I heard that after doing this research and kind of thinking through the evangelical culture. And I feel like what we've done as evangelicals is that we've said, okay, so men have this shame point regarding getting sex. Therefore, the way to fix the shame point is to make sure that anytime they ever want sex, they can just have it. And then they They won't have to feel shame because they will just be getting the sex as opposed to saying, wait a minute, you're feeling shame. You don't need to feel shame. You could feel maybe a little bit embarrassed that you're asking your wife for sex and she's not saying so. Or maybe you feel guilty because, I don't know, you've been propositioning her in a way that's kind of coercive. I don't know. But we haven't been able to have an honest conversation about why is there shame and then deconstructing that. And instead we're using, we're telling men essentially to use sex as a coping mechanism. That's so interesting. There, There's also multiple ways to get sex like there's sort of like more or less integrated ways Uh you might say of getting sex so in my own marriage there's like the obligatory sex i might get where if my wife feels bad for me or something but then there's like the sex that like we had a really good day and we had some really meaningful time together with our son and i was helpful around the house you know like where she felt loved and I don't I don't want to use the word pursued because now I'm thinking of Wild at Heart and all this <laughs> all these evangelical books. But she felt, you know, like I paid attention to her and her day as part of my day. So that's there are two different ways of getting the sex, yeah. but the second kind would feed into multiple kinds of well being for for me, mm-hmm. the, the male in that situation, not just the Well, I got my sex, you know, Mm -hmm. but you also can see how almost from like a public health type of a standpoint that like in some sense, like the quickest solution is just to like put more sex out there. Sort of like when in in the pandemic and after 2008, a lot of economists and pundits would say, just get some money into the economy, like just pump some cash in there because like we – that's the quickest thing we can do, and then we'll sort it out later. It's it's short-sighted, but you can see how it would seem to be effective, and it might be effective in certain short-term cases. But, of course, it's not really promoting relational health, which is, I would assume, why you're going to end up with all these negative effects that you guys are finding, right? Yeah, it's all about what's your goal. Is your goal to get more sex, or is your goal to have a good marriage? Is to be the image of Christ to your spouse, right? What is your actual goal? Because if the goal is to have more sex, yeah, just tell her she has to. You'll get more sex. Our survey found that women who believe the obligation message tend to have more sex. They also tend to enjoy it less. So we just have to talk about what's our goal, right? And that's what we are trying to make the culture talk about is let's actually talk about our goal. Because if our goal is just to have more sex, then frankly, that doesn't look like Christ in the church. You know, Christ doesn't sacrifice himself for the church just so he can get something out of the church. You know, Hmm. like this is about intimacy. Nor did he apparently get much sex at all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He seemed to do pretty well without sex. And, uh, there's also there's this, that. There's uh, also yeah. that whole cognitive yeah. dissonance of the emphasis of what it means to be, you know, good Christian man is a uh, parent yeah. celibacy when you look at Christ. So there's that whole right. mind yeah, trip or as Paul. well. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, that's a right. Well, the other, I had one other thought on this too, which I don't think would apply to everybody. So I want to be careful yeah. here because I think that there are plenty of men who, whether or not they're the book reading type, would actually be open to traditional but wise and integrated advice from Christian men and women on how to improve their marriages, including their sex lives. But there are also a bunch of other men who actually, to do the thing we're talking about, would require deconstructing a lot of background assumptions about, you know, men and women, the role of their pastor in their marriages, how to interpret the Bible. Like, and, and so rather than go through all of that, we'll just we'll find this shorter term, you know, quote unquote solution that seems to also be a possible pressure sort of market pressure. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting that Jesus told us to evaluate the tree by its fruit. And I feel like this entire project is us going, all right, evangelical marriage advice. How is the fruit doing? Um, It's looking kind of rotten. That to me is the reason that I like using the statistics. Yeah, it's looking real rotten. But it's why the statistics and the focus groups and the doing things in a systematic way is important because it allows us to legitimately evaluate the fruit. And um, yeah, I just think that part of it is really important. Well, 100%. And that's perfect bridge into where I was just going to go, which is let's get into the actual stuff you did. So you, you did the survey, you did qualitative focus group interview stuff as well. You did a follow-up survey. Let's just talk about this massive trove of, of data you got and and sort of what your decision-making process was along the way to, to kind of do it that way. Yeah. So I'll just talk about developing this survey, just, just so you know, like in essence, my mom, as we're doing this, she's the only one with a platform out of the three of us, right? She is mm-hmm. risking all of that to do this book. We are literally trying yeah. to deconstruct teachings that have been considered you know, just orthodox Christian marriage teachings for decades now. And we're going against all of the big names. And so we made sure that we were doing this to the best of our ability to up to psychometric standards. I will say I was a major psychometrics nerd. I did everything psychometrics I possibly could in my undergrad. I am the only person I have ever met who could say that other than my psychometrics professor. So this is totally (laughs) my just my my love child of yeah. the research was creating the survey and Joanna will tell you she got she'd have all these ideas and I would just you know go into full psychometrics mode and be, okay what possible areas of bias could we have with this question what areas of validity do we need to talk about so and I know a lot of listeners like don't like test making so I won't go on that too much I just want to make sure it's clear we didn't just put a bunch of opinions on the survey we did this by right. best practice well, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But but one thing I think that people will be interested in, that, and maybe this is a good time to ask, in some of the information about how you did this, you you noted that actually you knew you were going to be talking to a conservative audience. Mm-hmm. And so you actually took some of the survey wordings from other surveys in other languages that were intended for conservative audiences. And I actually recently found this with my own survey. I won't spend a lot of time here, but I got a a fair amount of pushback from conservatives who, 
who my own kind of clinical wording came off to them as liberal bias. Yeah. And some of the times I think that they had a point and there are things I would have done differently. But about 70% of the time, it was either standard language from the general social survey or it was, you know, just agreed upon APA verbiage for orientation or, you know, or whatever, like just stuff like that. I'm just like just trying to be neutral. And they took it as lefty coming with an agenda. And I didn't really anticipate that this being my first go round. You did anticipate that. So good on you. I want to hear a little about about this because I, I think that there's something really interesting there. Yeah, I mean, we actually had the opposite problem, frankly. We recognized that our the population we were most interested in were the conservative folks. And so we assumed it was a husband that these women were married to. I didn't, it wasn't anybody's favorite. Nobody liked doing it that way, but we recognized that we were going to scare away a large proportion of the women who we really wanted to do our survey of our population of interest. And so we felt that that was a justified choice. Additionally, I did find a survey from a Muslim country and it was fabulously helpful because it had a lot of questions about kind of the obligation sex message and its uh, effects that I wouldn't have thought to ask otherwise. It was such a, a gift to me to have that, that wording. Um, I did have to modify things a pinch just because it was in a different language at first. And so I just, you know, cleaned up the English a bit, but it was, it was super helpful. And the reason that we did that is because best practice for writing surveys is to whenever possible use previously validated questions, right? Because we run into issues where we each have bias all the time. And so when we can Mm -hmm. use survey questions that have already been peer reviewed and have already been accepted and have already been, you know, seen as, yeah, this worked, um, let's not reinvent the wheel, right? So that's what we did as much as possible for our marital satisfaction or sexual satisfaction questions. As much as humanly possible, we used previously validated questions so that we weren't accidentally putting our own bias into things so that we were, you know, in essence, doing it up to best practices. That's really all we're asking people to do is let's just research this stuff. Let's do it well. And so we really tried our best. And I think we did a really good job and we're really proud of what we did. So that's great. I do think that and I'm sure you guys know this, but one of the problems that you run into, especially in evangelical circles, is there is a deep distrust of science and the academy. Yes. And I don't I'm not an evangelical historian, but I my understanding is that a lot of this goes back to like Scope's monkey trial and the original fundamentalist debates of the 1920s and 30s and teens. And so we've just got literally 100 years of this kind of distrust. Mm-hmm. And so best practices can mean like, oh, liberal academic closet Satanists, basically, or at at the very least, people with some sort of liberal academic agenda. What have you guys done in terms of, I know the book's not out yet, so some of this is still to come, but just if you have anything here, when you talk about this, when you're doing outreach into these communities, like how do you control for that and make sure that you're not just dismissed outright. I will say we have an in and it's that we talk about sex because our Mm. outcome variables aren't subjective in all this in the same way. Like we ask, how often do you orgasm? Like you either orgasm or you don't, right? Like, do you experience sexual pain? Yes or no. And a lot of the science that people don't agree with, they don't really disagree with statistics. We've found people disagree with, you know, biology, um, like, or theoretical sciences, or maybe psychology experiments that they see as, 
you know, uh, where you actually have live people that you're following over the time, they think, oh, well, there was just bias and this or that. But when you're just asking a survey of yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, strongly agree to strongly disagree, it's kind of hard to be against that, especially since, and here's the thing, there is previous research in this area that does the same kinds of, the same kind of um, approach that we did, which is Shanti Felton's books, the for women only, for men only, for young women only, for young men only. She has a whole series where she did surveys and this became the benchmark in Christianity, in highly conservative Christianity was that surveys, good surveys show truth. Now, we have actually talked about her survey on our on the blog and about how there are major problems with how she has asked questions. Um, a really quick, short one, just which is why we wanted to make sure we did things up to code, is Emerson Egrich and Shanti Felton both cite Shanti's research in their books, which states that men want respect and women want love. But the question that they decided that on, they didn't ask women. They asked 400 men. We have no evidence that they asked women. In Love and Respect, Dr. Emerson Egrich, he cites Shanti's research for men and does not offer a single citation for women. So they said 70% of men would choose to feel alone and unloved rather than feel inadequate and disrespected. And so therefore, women must choose the opposite. But turns out, nope. Women choose the same thing at about the same rate. And so this entire conglomerate of evangelical marriage advice where men need respect, women need love, give men respect, and then you get love. This whole idea is based on a survey question of 400 men that didn't ask women. So this is the basis that actually allowed for our survey to be accepted because Shanti Felton decided that she wanted to prove to conservative evangelical circles that surveys are good. So now our survey is accepted. That kind of debunks everything that they said. Fantastic. Uh, Hopefully I can ride those coattails talking about spiritual abuse instead of sex, but I think it's going to be a lot harder. A lot more subject subjectivity in the kind of stuff I'm trying to measure, you know, than than orgasm. (laughs) Well, we'll try to pave the way for you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So, and then Rebecca, you did some focus groups Mm -hmm. with three partially overlapping categories of women. Maybe just say a sentence or two about each category and why you were interested in them. The first one is women who've experienced primary sexual pain. Yeah. After we did our survey, we looked at the preliminary results from the data when Joanna ran some stats and we decided we wanted to really hone in on sexual pain, on marital rape survivors, and for people who had overcome um, mind shift, um, uh, overcome beliefs about sex that led them to have Mm. a sexual breakthrough. Um, So the reason... For the first two, which is primary sexual pain, which just for people who don't know, because this isn't in the general knowledge, primary sexual pain, otherwise known as vaginismus, is an involuntary spasming of the muscles in the vaginal wall, which can make sex painful or even impossible. Some women experience it as if they're having an episiotomy every time they have sex, Um, just to put that in perspective. Um, The other one, obviously, marital rape survivors. The reason we wanted to really talk to these two groups of women in particular is because they're not mentioned in Christian sex books. They're not really mentioned. And this is a large portion of the population, and we don't want to admit it, but a lot of women have Mm -hmm. sexual pain, and a lot of women are assaulted in their marriages. And I'll say one sentence for each of those. I won't do too long on this, but a quick Quick thing is for vaginismus and sexual pain. We actually did a quick, a quick um, search on focus on the family's website on desiring God on the gospel coalition, all these websites. And we, we, we were interested. 
So we search erectile dysfunction. All sorts of stuff pops up. You have erectile dysfunction. It like anything in the penis department. There is lots of information for you. You know, they have got the penis covered. They're making sure the penis is fine. They're like, keep it, keep it strong. Keep it going. Okay. But you know what they had for vaginismus? Nothing. And in women ages 20 to 40, vaginismus is, I believe, more common than erectile dysfunction is for men in that age group. So of the Mm. kinds of people who are reading Focus on the Family, who are asking for marriage advice and sex advice at a higher number, you're more likely to experience sexual pain then you are erectile dysfunction. But once again, we go back to this whole idea of what's the goal to have sex. Well, you, you can have sex if sex hurts, but you can't have sex right. if he has sexual dysfunction. So even though her Ugh. sexual dysfunction causes pain, it's not talked about because it doesn't Guys, get in the, the way data, of the goal. Just the data approach here is just a balm to my soul. <laughs> I love it. I love how much you are quantifying this stuff. Yeah. It makes me feel like the conversations around purity culture and I know this isn't strictly speaking purity culture. I, I guess it's, it's related, right? It's, it's semi overlapping. I think purity culture is a circle within what we're talking about. Okay, yeah. sure. That makes sense. Uh, but just these, these, you know, these conversations in general, I, I love just getting the, the data mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. It, it, it makes me feel like I haven't wasted my time and other people's mm-hmm. time, you know, talking about it and thinking about it and stuff. And then the other, this is interesting. The other group is people who have had a significant mindset shift regarding sex. And this reminds me of actually a lot of people who listen to this show and myself who people have deconstructed and reconstructed into Mm -hmm. a different kind of Christian faith. There's something interesting about like the case study of the person who changed their mind Mm -hmm. Uh, because those of us who know any of the social science around changing your mind and argumentation stuff, it's rare. People don't really change their minds that much. They do very slowly. They don't even realize that they have. It's kind of just that people they look up to have slightly shifted. So they start shifting or their community shifts. So they shift with their community. Very few people go, I have changed my mind on this. And so I'm obviously I'm interested in that group. I'm curious what led you to be interested in that group for this project. What we were looking at with our survey was what beliefs harm your sex life. So we wanted to know what happens when you ditch those beliefs. That's all. We just wanted to know what happens. Like, how do we get free? Are people getting free? Is there hope? Are we all just doomed because we've read one bad marriage book? Right? So we wanted to figure out that. So we talked to these women and we asked them, did you have, you know, a major mindset change that led to a a breakthrough. And we talked to not just one or two women, we actually talked to quite a few. So we were able to see the themes emerging and seeing what actually is it that does rescue people from terrible, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad sex and get them great sex instead. And it was so encouraging. Another thing that I want to bring up as far as the reason that we did that particular part of the survey or or of the study, sorry, is that we found that vaginismus is correlated with believing the obligation sex message before you're married. But if you believe the obligation sex message currently, there was no association with vaginismus. So we figured that something was going on with women with vaginismus, that part of the treatment process was changing the way that they saw sex. And we wanted to look into that. And we actually did find that women who ditch the obligation sex message are more, or or that is part of their, story of overcoming sexual pain. So what you're saying is that a high enough percentage of women who have vaginismus when they are married, the pain causes them to rethink their beliefs and 
so some portion of them drop that belief and then the correlation disappears that was there before they were married and started having the pain, right? That's our hypothesis, yeah. Yeah, okay. Interesting. So actually, before we get into some of the, frankly, I would imagine there'll be sort of depressing details about some of these outcomes and these messages. It might be good to actually stick on this for a little bit with some hope. Yeah. Tell me what you found with these people who were able to change their minds. Like, like all the stuff we're about to hear is not terminal, right? So uh, maybe let's help ourselves realize that it's not terminal, that we could change our mind. So what'd you find? So what we found was that if beliefs are able to kind of, again, ruin your sex life, beforehand, if you do change beliefs, there is hope. And this is something that has happened enough times that we're pretty confident in saying that, yeah, if you want to, you know, improve your sex life, if you want to set yourself up for a great sex life, if you're not married yet, going into it with an open understanding of looking at sexuality as something other than an obligation, something other than, um, you know, just a way to ward off cravings, that kind of idea. If you're able to get over these things, you can unlock what sex is meant to be. And something that we found that was really hopeful was a lot of these women said that their husbands were huge factors in their healing. You know, Hmm. when you hear about a book like The Great Sex Rescue and you hear that we um, talk to 20,000 women, what do you immediately think? Uh, Well, they're just going to say men are the problem, right? Not at all. That's not what I thought. Yeah. Well, I will tell you, that is what a lot of people have accused us of. Like, oh, well, you just hate men. Yeah. 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 It's like, that's a common stupid defense mechanism. It's a red herring, right? They don't want to address the real argument. And so they throw something else out there. No. But what we actually found is that for a lot of women, we can believe things even if our husbands give us no reason to think that they believe it because we're steeped mm. in this, right? From the age of 11 or 12, girls right. are told you have to cover up because the men around you can't control themselves. From right. the minute that a girl gets a training bra, she is immersed into this culture that says your worth is your virginity. Whatever you do, don't mess up. And by the way, the minute you get married, you have to be some sex kitten and you don't have a choice anyway. Cause if you don't, then he's going to have an affair or watch porn. Like this is what a lot of girls are growing up in. And so then they marry genuinely great, selfless, loving guys who would never ever want to force them to have sex with them or would never threaten to watch porn if they didn't get enough nookie, you know, but because their husbands don't know that they've been taught these things. They just go on this life like normal, not realizing that whenever they ask for sex, their wife gets a panic response thinking, Oh "Oh, crap, we have to do it again. You know, or you, they don't even, a lot of them don't even know their wives are in pain because their wives are so scared to admit the pain because their husbands need this so much. So the really hopeful message for a lot of women, I hope is if you haven't talked to your husband about this, talk to him. You might be married to a way better man than you think. Like talk to Yeah, him. we I mean we've been we've been married eleven years and we just had a conversation the other night, like kind of having a little argument and had a weird day and got into some stuff, some of which was old old hat, you know, we've been through before, but some of it wasn't. And it was just like I just was sitting there going, Eleven years. I mean, we've been together for almost fifteen years and like in one conversation we uncovered like two or three really interesting things. A lot of this stuff just doesn't get talked about that much because it's not in the ordinary flow of the day. No, it's not. One example we have from the focus groups, a woman we call Sandra in the book, and her story is so, so hopeful. I love it. 
she sat down with her husband one day after suffering for years, like close, I believe, to 20 years of vaginismus and just generally unenjoyable sex where she felt guilty and she felt dirty and she would do devotionals confessing to God everything that they did when they had sex, just in case something she did wasn't sanctioned. She had such this guilt about sex, but she so believed this obligation sex message. And she just went to her husband and she told him all of her fears. She told him that she was so scared not to have sex with him because he might watch porn or she was so scared to say no and she didn't feel like she had any choice. And he just listened and said, I don't want to do anything you don't want to do. I want this to be great for you. I want this to be great for both of us. And frankly, I'm just horrified that this has been your experience so far. And that man focused his attentions on proving to his wife that she didn't have to have sex with him when she didn't want to. You know, she was allowed to say no, even if they were already having sex. That was a big one, you know, but really he became the voice of consent in their marriage. And he proved it to her. And what she said, she said this in her interview. She said that after years and years of sexual pain, seeing physiotherapists, which was helpful, but wasn't getting her all the way there, hearing that from her husband and watching him prove it to her, that she mattered to him, her experience mattered to him, and that he didn't want to take something she didn't want to give. She said her, her body physically changed. And she was able to have sex wow. pain-free. And obviously that's only one woman's story. But we heard it's that anecdotal. a couple sure, of yeah. times. We heard that repeatedly where these mindset shifts are what we're holding women back from experiencing their first orgasm, from getting to enjoy making out again, from being able to have pain-free penetrative sex. Beliefs have a big impact. And when we're willing to address them, even though it means we might have to address something in our culture of the church, something in our culture of our marriage, we have to address what our parents believe, what our friends believe, what that says about who we are, and even scarier, what that says about who God actually is and having to challenge, maybe we have some stuff wrong. If we're willing to do that, if our goal is to honestly seek truth, we should be willing to look at these things, even if they're uncomfortable, because we have found over and over again that, like we said earlier, the tree of the current evangelical messages on sex and marriage is the fruit is rotten. The fruit is rotten. And if we're willing to seek truth and seek health together as couples, that bears amazing fruit. And it's not just one person we heard that from. You see it throughout the survey. You see it in our focus groups. We hear it every day on the blog as we work. People who have worked through this. And it's time that we as a Christian culture decide that we're no longer just listening to the opinions of people who have done no research in this, who just quote one Bible verse out of context and use it to browbeat wives into putting out more. We just need to stop listening to this and start looking at evidence-based treatments, in essence, for sex that align with a biblical model because they exist and they lead to a lot better outcomes than lower orgasms and higher sexual pain. Tremendously encouraging. I want to throw one question that's coming to me in the moment out there before we take a little break, and then we're gonna we're gonna come back and look at some of the your findings, basically your big findings. I wonder if there is one other piece of selection pressure on these books, mm-hmm. and I wonder if it's kind of like a you don't want to be the book that lets down the reader, like. Let me see if I can explain this well. If you write to your primarily female, you know, wife audience 
And you say to them in the book, look at these examples of all these godly men who don't act this way. And then they go back and their man is not that godly. Uh (laughs) Then have you in their mind opened the door to divorce, you know, the D word? Uh Are you setting them up for something that, that basically you're revealing your incredibly low view of males by not wanting uh, – and uh, this is all probably unconscious. I, I'm, I'm not accusing people of like willfully doing this move or whatever. But what if you swing for the fences and you strike out and like two-thirds of your readers strike out with their husbands? And I, I would guess that it would actually – probably more of them are good than you'd think. But if you have this assumption that they'll they'll all be shitty yeah. – uh, so then you don't want to get their hopes up kind of a thing. I don't, is this making sense? Does that sound plausible? Yeah, I guess for me, I would just bring it back to the ending of Love and Respect, which I found incredibly disturbing because the ending of Love and Respect makes the argument very clearly that you should endure your husband's unloving behavior in order to get treasures in heaven, i.e., stick with an abusive spouse because Jesus will give you crowns in glory. I don't know what to make of that other than frankly, as being an apologist for abuse. And clearly in these books, they don't outright say women should just put up with abuse in order to do this, but this is the argument they build. You could never print that. And it's exactly what you were talking about, Dan, where it's like the goal is to make sure people don't get divorced, right? You can't say the D word. Right. <laughs> you don't even want people thinking that. Exactly. Word. But also right. women are buying these books, not because they want to end their marriages, but because they want to save them. So if we're able to tell right. women, well, if you just put out more and you just stay quiet, then yeah, you won't get divorced. You'll get your desired outcome. Your desired True. outcome is the marriage sticks together. But again, the desired outcome needs to be health. And if the desired outcome is health and that gives us an uncomfortable reality for a while while we work towards health. Like the way to treat cancer is not to avoid chemotherapy because it's uncomfortable. It's to go through it and end up healthier on the other side. I don't want to put words in your mouth. And so you can (laughs) throw this out if it doesn't work, but it really reminds me of something that a line of thinking that has mercifully become common. I think even in some kind of evangelical adjacent spaces, which is like, in, I think it's Dallas Willard, the idea that like so much of what we think of as Christian teaching is actually very little about Jesus and is just sin management. Oh my goodness, that that's basically yes. what the church is engaged in. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's like just divorce management. Yeah, divorce so management just and like, porn management, the two. Right. Okay. Divorce yeah. <laughs> management and porn management. So all we're, we're, we're sort of resigned to only reducing divorces and pornography usage. And so we're just going to settle for that. And we're not going to actually become disciples of Christ. We're not going to become Christ-like through and through and, and really change who we are, you know, and, and work on the deep problems of ourselves toward God. We're, we're going to be okay with this much smaller vision of sin, divorce, pornography, Reduction. Exactly. And to me, what it says is we don't actually believe in the transformation of Christ. That's what it says, is we can spout it all we want with our lips, 
But when all of our advice focuses on making sure she puts out, making sure that, you know, at least they just don't get divorced and we don't talk about health, we don't talk about transformation, we don't talk about actually becoming like Christ. To me, it says, what do you actually believe? Do we actually believe that Jesus was enough or do we not? Okay. One last thought, because I can't help myself. As someone training to be a therapist and Rebecca, you know, you got your uh, bachelor's in psychology. I can't help but see a connection there between what you just said and the skepticism around therapy mm-hmm. um, and around psychological work, which is work that the entire practice of therapy assumes that people can change, that they can actually fundamentally change themselves, their habits, their feelings and their thoughts to be better. Right. So if you didn't believe that, you, you would not become a therapist. And I think that there is in exchange for that in some evangelical circles, there's really a disdain for that kind of uh, I guess it's sort of secular, but it's like it's like ongoing work on yourself, bringing someone in who's not a pastor. And there's a preference for something more like here are the 10 truths that you can believe in the Bible. And if you really believe them. That solves all your problems. Mm -hmm. And that's way simpler than going to therapy for three years and digging up every bit of your story and all your feelings. And there's a real preference for any number of reasons for this Bible fact, you know, simple thing. And that's where you see some of that tension with psychotherapy. Agreed entirely. Nothing to add. Okay, great. Joanna, Mm -hmm. anything to add? No, I I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think that the reality is, I think evangelicalism has lost its way. You don't say. And it's lost its way. (laughs) Yes. In many ways, by taking the easy road, right? What's the quick fix? And by refusing to do the hard work, especially by the people who have power. Right. And what we're saying is. We've got to address the power dynamics and we've got to do the hard work of improving ourselves and of being honest with each other and of actually being vulnerable. Fantastic. Okay, quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of your uh, main findings. We're not going to spoil the book, but we're going to we'll get into enough of them to get a sense for it. Great. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the show notes, of course. And the most recent exclusive episode for patrons was a conversation with Martin Smith about the moral argument for God. This is a common argument made in apologetics circles, and he did a lot of work on it. He kind of comes from that world and really came to believe that it doesn't quite work the way that a lot of Christian apologists think it does or ought to work. Uh, That doesn't leave him without any hope in terms of thinking of Christianity as a reasonable position or a position that has some warrant, uh, some evidence for it. Uh, Here's a little clip of uh, him and I talking, I guess it's just him talking at the very end of our chat, kind of summing up a little bit of what we talked about. I I, I do find it hard to believe that there is no kind of purpose going on. And that that's in some sense, just a psychological fact about me. And there's sure you can question what follows from that. But I think there are also like, we spoke at the start about not wanting to totally abandon 
making like a rational case um, for God. And I, I think there are lines here in terms of like the fine tuning argument, but not just the mere fact that there's a universe hospitable to life, but that there's one hospitable to life with a moral conscience, right. um, conscious and stuff like that. I, I think there's, there's like weight to that. Yeah. To hear that and a hundred or so other patron exclusive episodes, usually it's two per month. You can become a patron, as I said, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. You also get access to the patron-only Facebook group, um, and that's a really big benefit. Okay, back to the episode. All right, I'm back with my new friends, my, my new peers and friends, <laughs> Rebecca and Joanna. We are all roughly the same age. And you guys are doing the kind of stuff that gets me excited and actually not only keeps me up at night, but wakes me up in the morning too early when I should keep sleeping because the next morning will be the morning I have to get up early with Soren. So uh, let's talk about some of these findings. First of all, zoomed out, you say the messages in these books and resources do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. How did you define harm and good such that you could make that statement? Well, really, we were looking at sexual satisfaction outcomes, right? Orgasm rates, vag uh, vaginismus rates, which is sexual pain. We're looking at whether or not women could get aroused. Like we were looking at, in essence, was sex good or not, right? Mm -hmm. And what we were finding is that when people are exposed to or believe many of these messages, women orgasm less, it hurts more, and they get less aroused. And I don't know if... The listeners agree with me, but if you're reading a book for sex, those is not what you're aiming for. You're not aiming for a less aroused, less orgasmic, more in pain sexual experience, right? Okay, so to break this down, you like you would have these scales where it's like, how strongly do you agree with this statement? Mm -hmm. And you'd have mm -hmm. a statement from these books. And the correlation is the more they agree with them, the worse their sex life is. Uh, I mostly did odds ratios, so I didn't use, we did do Likert scale, so where it was strongly agree okay. to strongly disagree. Quite frankly, there is so much data and so much richness there that I will not be able to run all of the analyses that I want to. But for this particular book, we mostly looked at what we would call in epidemiology, the two by two table. So if you are exposed and the exposure that we were looking at was, do you believe these things? How okay. does that change your disease outcome? In this case, we're saying the disease outcome is you aren't orgasming reliably or you are experiencing sexual pain. Okay. So it's just like there are the people who believe the claim and the people who don't believe the claim. And then there are the proportions of each that either do have or, you know, whatever, how many orgasms. Mm -hmm. But so all those, all those worked out basically to be this great irony, mm -hmm. which is you'd think that these books, although now that we've been talking, you might not think that these books are about having a great sex life. What you might actually think is that they're about preventing divorce and preventing pornography viewing for your husband. Yeah. Um, and so maybe they do that, but they certainly don't, it would appear, give you better sex. They give you a worse sex yeah, life. Yeah, and I do want to say, like, these authors were not setting out to lower orgasm rates and increase rates of sexual pain. Of course they weren't. And of course not. Like, they were right. trying to create health healthy, helpful materials. They really were. We we don't think that these authors are horrible, terrible, evil people. But I mean, Francis Schaefer was not trying to give 
10 million uneducated evangelical men an excuse to never learn a single thing about another religion. But he ended up doing that. Well, and we have so many examples within psychology itself where we used to do treatments that are just ridiculous that we know now they don't work. Like, no, you should not give heroin to anxious women. But that's what we did for years and cocaine. (laughs) Like, those are not okay. Laudanum, just passing out laudanum in the the old West. Look at all the lobotomies that they did in the early 1900s, right? Like, yeah, so we should have some grace. It's, It's not, it's, this is re- this is actually really important distinction, and it's actually something that I am I feel like I'm increasingly needing to push back within my own community of sort of what you might call progressive Christianity, deconstructed Christianity, whatever you want to say, where there's a tendency to say, oh, all those beliefs are toxic or whatever, and all those people are bad actors. Mm-hmm. But it's like, no, it's actually quite a bit more complicated, and it's something more like there's this big cluster of beliefs and a couple of these we could point to and say, actually, that belief really is toxic. I think you guys are actually doing a really good job of pinpointing some of those beliefs. Statistically. But you – yes. But you take a broader one, like off the top of my head to apply it to your guys' work, something like it's important to to please my husband sexually yeah. or something vague like that. That is not a toxic belief. Yeah. It does not do damage in and of itself. Now, there's – you could combine that belief with some other things, contexts, personality types, other beliefs, and you can get to something toxic quite easily. But like, pr- you know, probably my wife thinks that that's true. Yeah, well, we'd hope that we and, all think that prioritizing know, our partner's pleasure is a priority, right? Right. But what right. we want to see come out of this, you know, we get we get told all the time that we're just trying to be cancel culture in the church, Right. Oh my God. But like, and that's just such an easy one to lob at us, right? It's so little effort. But what Mm -hmm. I think we need to talk about is the fact that in every other discipline where we're helping people overcome problems, whether it's medicine, whether it's psychology, you know, all these other areas, there is an expectation that with evidence, our treatments will change. And what Mm -hmm. would be better than if all of these authors came together and said, hey, what we've been doing for years doesn't work. And so we're all going to redo our books. We're all going to recall them. We're all going to do new editions that are based in this, like that are based in research that actually considers women um, and considers women's experience. That would have such a huge impact. But what we're seeing instead is that, you know, authors are putting in their books that women were angry or even harmed by their bestsellers and they just kind of brush it off. And that's what's concerning to us because we all make mistakes. But I think that with our apologetics, evangelical culture, we're not able to say I was wrong because being right is being holy, right? If you have the most information, you know God the best. And so, and this is all my opinion. Mm. This is me just That's interesting, yeah. But I think we need to normalize the idea of, like we've said again and again, personal growth. You can change, and that doesn't change who you are. That doesn't change if you're a good person or not. In fact, I would say changing your opinions because of new research is actually a really good character trait. And I would love to see that more. And that's really what we're calling for. We're not just calling for the canceling of these harmful books. What we're calling for is for these authors to step up and, frankly, do their job as shepherds of the sheep. And actually take care of the female ones, too. And I would argue that these books are really harmful to men as well. But it's just that women are the ones who are being assaulted and who are experiencing high rates of sexual pain as a result. Yeah. And I I also want to just point out that one of the things that I absolutely adore about Rebecca's mom, Sheila, is that Sheila has been very willing to say, hey, guess what? 
I messed up when I talked about mm-hmm. these topics before. I presented it in this way. Turns out I was wrong. And here's how I'm going to do it in the future. She has asked for books of hers to be pulled. She changed her mind based on stuff we found in our book about sexless marriages. And that kind of accountability and willingness to own up to your mistakes should just be standard practice. And frankly, that's normal in academia. You roll, people have different opinions. The evidence shows up and then you go, oh, turns out the, the you know, whatever culture is where they started that language. You know, you, you figure out whatever the, the question at, at hand is, you debate yourselves to figuring out what the real, what the real truth is. And I wish that that sort of rigor was allowed in evangelicalism. Yes. So say we all. Let's move into some of these individual findings, some of the more interesting correlations that you found between these specific beliefs and then these negative outcomes. So one of these is correlated with an eight times higher divorce rate than if people don't believe it. Which which claim is that? Yeah, so we found that it's uh, 7.4 times more likely to be divorced if couples are making decisions unilaterally versus making collaborative decision-making. So, I mean, honestly, to me, this seems very obvious. My husband and I have some big decisions coming up. We're figuring out how many kids are we going to have? How long are we going to live in the Arctic? How are we going to decide how to divvy up our money? How are we going to divvy up our time? Big, big, big questions. And sometimes we don't agree. Now, what are we going to do? If I'm listening to what the evangelical world says, what I'm supposed to do is in the case of a time my husband wins. Now, I am a person who has had bad obstetric outcomes. Uh, I talk in the book about how I had a life-threatening miscarriage, and I've had a number of scary bleeds when I give birth. And if my husband said, you know what, honey, I say we should have five kids and you want to have, let's say, three kids. You've got to do it. I'm putting my life on the line. How horrible would that be for my husband to say that to me? And yet that is what the evangelical books would say that my husband should do and that I should submit to that. And I know that that can sound a bit fanciful, but we hear stories frequently on the blog of people whose husbands go and buy houses without their consent. Oh my gosh. No, no, this does not sound fanciful. My wife's, so we had a series of miscarriages, early miscarriages, and the first one was an ectopic pregnancy. Oh. And that oh, would have been I'm life so threatening if it hadn't been treated. I mean, yeah. we, we ended up getting through it and we did fertility treatment and we have Soren and, mm. um, you know, it has, it's had a, it's had a better outcome than many of these stories. And I know I have plenty of listeners that haven't had those outcomes, but, mm-hmm. uh, it does, that's not fanciful. <laughs> the host of this particular podcast has, you know, our, my wife went through that and I went through it with her and, and yeah, there, there's a layer we should probably not uh-huh. delve into, but there, there's a, there's another layer on top of this stuff where certain i'm sure it's just certain types of people it's not only religious people but there are people who really need a lot of closure and they need a lot of rules and they need a lot of like clear delineations between things and that's when i found some like insane catholic ethical teaching from these bloggers about how well if you remove the whole tube then that's not abortion but if you suck it out of the tube then that's abortion which is insane because if you suck it out you might have another baby through that mm-hmm. tube which is the purpose of that tube 
to use some, you know, Augustinian oh. language and so or Aristotelian language. So, you know, it's it's so bizarre. But there's there is sometimes that overlay, which I, I think is probably more of a personality trait, like a kind of a need for closure, a need for simplicity. But then it gets the religious language used as its justification. And so you might have these men and maybe women, too, who can't abide the possibility that you'd really just have to hash it out. Isn't it simpler to just say, well, here is our interpretation of headship is that husband breaks the tie, which, by the way, that interpretation is not in the Bible. Paul doesn't talk about tie breaking. I'm familiar with it because it's the interpretation that we were taught in our marriage prep book that we read, which I think was not as bad as some of the other ones. It was called Sacred Marriage. And I, I disagree with a lot of it, but was it in your sacred marriage in your 15? Uh, we actually did look at sacred marriage. Yes. We didn't look at marriage teachings. We only looked specifically at things on sex right. um, and sacred sex, marriage yeah. actually scored pretty well on its teachings on sex. It was very mutual okay. and it tended to emphasize that both partners are responsible for, you know, the, their own fidelity. Yeah. So this was 12 years ago, but that sounds yeah. right. I was pretty distracted at the time. Yeah. I don't know how much <laughs> of that book I really absorbed. Uh, having, having waited, you know, as a good evangelical, but we don't need to go into that, but I think there's an, also an overlay of this kind of simplicity need for closure stuff that unfortunately multiplies. Yeah. Well, and other research has found, I'll say this really quickly. Other research has found the same kind of thing. John Gottman himself says that when he talks to couples, if the husband is unwilling to share power with his wife, he predicts an 81% chance that they'll be divorced, I believe. Wow. So like, we're not the only ones who have found that there's a really high correlation with being unwilling to share power, decision-making power and high divorce rates. And what I think is happening is it's just like what you said, they're not willing to hash it out. But what happens if you're not hashing it out? You're not really listening to your partner. And so you lack the intimacy. You don't really know each other because you go to these shortcuts, right? And that's just, that's mm-hmm. the whole idea of our book is like health is better than shortcuts. It's harder. Yeah. But harder doesn't mean bad. Right. Okay, you guys might have stumbled upon the explanation of the divorce rate in evangelical culture. Mm. Like, basically, Mm. it's this bizarre thing where, on the one hand, as we talked about at the very beginning, evangelicals and other uh, religious folks, to the extent that they're religious, they have better marriages, they have lower divorce rates, and yet the group as a whole has roughly the same divorce rate as the general population. And if Gottman says that there's an 81% chance of divorce, if husbands are unwilling to share power, and if all the marriage and all, not all, but most of the marriage and sex books are upholding a, a vision where the husband doesn't have to share power. Now, interestingly, I think a bunch of these wives exercise plenty of power in a way that is just not acknowledged or like, like I think you find a bunch of these complementarian marriages are more egalitarian than maybe even they'll admit to themselves. Yeah. Right. But maybe this is the, maybe this is the causal mechanism of like the divorce rate might be much lower than the population. If we lost this power sharing bit, we actually found exactly that we measured both the belief that, you know, a wife should submit to her husband's decisions and also whether wives actually did that. And we found that a much higher proportion believed than who actually acted it out. So what I think is genuinely happening is that there's a lot of couples that are really happy and they say they believe all this evangelical stuff, but they're not actually acting it out in their marriage. You know, they may say that they believe that a wife has to give her husband sex, but really he's really focused on making sure that she enjoys herself and that she doesn't do anything she doesn't want to do, right? They may say that she has to submit to decisions, but they don't actually act it out. And so the question that we ask in our book is if our marriage advice and sex advice only really works if you don't follow it, is it good advice? 
<laughs> That's incredible. I'll just say I personally know many officially complementarian marriages where the wife is 100% fucking in control of every aspect of that marriage and that family life. And and it's not even close. So I don't know how I, you know, I don't know what the cognitive dissonance is like there or whatever, and it's not my business, but clearly there is like a preach practice differential yeah. along that and line. And with all the stuff we talk about in our book, we're just trying to give readers the ability to look for truth and to stop blindly accepting what authority mm-hmm. says, because the only authority we are to really, really obey is Jesus. And so no matter what your pastor says, what a book says, I mean, for Pete's sake, even our book, you know, we believe our book stands up because of the research and because we really tried to give a Christ-centered ethic, but you're allowed to disagree with us and we just want you to be healthy. That's it. That's our goal. And I think if we get back to this idea of, you know, not just focusing so much on power, so much on shortcuts, uh, we'll just be a lot better. And you'll see that in the other stats as well. Like just comes back again and again. Well, let's move yeah. on. What's what's the next one you guys want to talk about? These these findings. Yeah, we found out that if women are having sex out of a sense of obligation, they are one point eight times more likely to experience uh, primary sexual pain. So that was just quite frankly the correlations with vaginismus that we found. I suspected we may find some. I was surprised mm-hmm. by how many and by how strong the correlations were. Now, why is that? Is it because it's sort of rare? Is it because it's I, I don't I guess I don't really know, because when you said it, I was like, yeah, the ones who are having it, whether or not, like I understand a little bit about lubrication and, you know, arousal and stuff. So that would kind of make sense that it would hurt more if you're not really into it and you're just going along with it. So it didn't it didn't strike me as uh, maybe a shocking number. I'm, I'm wondering what what I'm seeing that you. What I'm not seeing that you saw beforehand. I think that the reality is that I thought that there would be a causal connection, but I wasn't sure that our survey would be able to pick it up. And it was. Okay. So essentially what I found is that I'm very happy with how the survey instrument <laughs> performs, frankly. like Sure. The, yes. Yeah. Well, that's a nice it's, way to spin it. Good. Well, and that is one of the reasons we wanted so many women is because vaginismus is such a rare, like relatively uh, low incidence rate of this, especially to the point that penetration is impossible. Only about 7% of women experience that. And we had enough women in our survey to actually do these analyses. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. good. Yeah, I'm, uh, oh gosh, I won't get into the nerdy stuff. Let's just say I, I had a hard time getting enough conservatives to be able to do that analysis, but I got enough. Mm-hmm. We're good. And I'll say about um, the obligation sex message, we did notice that women who believe it before they are married are more likely to have sexual pain when they are married. So it's not just that you're having sex and you don't want to, it's that you are more likely to experience sexual pain at all. If you heard it before, you're likely even having sex. Now that's interesting. Yeah, And Joanna so ran another isn't... stat about wedding night experiences, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to hear about that. Oh, yeah, this is a new one. This is not in the book. So we, we had cool. these questions about sexual experience on your wedding night and Rebecca and I had an embargo on using them because... We were like, look, there's like, if you had sex before you married, it's not like you can, if you, other things, you can change that. You can't change that. There's nothing helpful. It's just going to be shaming, especially given the history mm-hmm. of purity culture. That's all we're going to be doing. It's unhelpful. We're not going to run these stats. 
And so anytime someone would say, oh, well, Joanna, why don't we run this stat using those questions? I'd say, no, 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 we're not running them over and over again. And then we had this idea because what we've realized through the focus groups and interviews especially is that arousal really matters at first sexual contact because a number of women oh. who have had terrible stories of vaginismus would get really aroused while they were making out with their um, now husbands when they were dating or engaged. And they thought, you know, if that had been our first sexual contact as opposed to when I was really tired and strung out on my wedding night and I felt like I should just put out because I should, would I have had 20 years of vaginismus? And that question came up over and over and over again. And then Sheila and Rebecca realized that we had a way to measure it. And they pitched it to me and I said, absolutely. And what we did is we looked at women who had only ever had consensual sex with their now husband. And we compared the rate of vaginismus of women who had sex with their now husband before they were married and those who waited until after the wedding. And turns out that, yeah, vaginismus rates were higher if folks waited till the wedding night. And we suspect that the reason for that is the arousal piece. That's interesting. I mean, there there could be also some like physical size incompatibility. I would imagine that's not the main case, but that maybe you figure that out if you start having sex before you get married and then you don't get married and then you wouldn't. Actually, so you wouldn't that's that a group. misconception. Vaginismus is not caused by size um remember that women can birth children um we're quite stretchy (laughs) um (laughs) additionally let's get really graphic here for a second when a woman is aroused her vaginal her vagina actually um elongates a bit so if sex is hurting a man would have to be quite long for it to uh (laughs) you know, really, really hurt all the time. Um, Additionally, um, sexual pain related to vaginismus is not about contact with the cervix. It's an involuntary um, contraction of the muscles at the beginning of the vagina. And that's the stretchiest bit. So even if you're quite a girthy fella, um, that shouldn't be (laughs) enough to cause a vaginismus. That's not how you cause it. It's it's the muscular issue and it can affect women who are married to men on the smaller size or on the bigger size, but it's not about a compatibility issue. Interesting. Thank you for putting me in my place. <laughs> uh, I, I had a, I had a fairly close friend that they assumed that that's what was going on. And I was just going off of their anecdotal, whatever explanation. I had never looked into it. My own, uh, my own wedding night, I have described, I believe publicly as a comedy of errors. <laughs> Uh, and so I, I wish you had put it in the book. And I, and I think that you I think that there is an application here that's not just shame, because there are people who are going to read your book that are not married yet. Yes. And they may take this information into account. Now, that would run afoul with the purity culture uh, gatekeepers, of course, because they might think that they should have sex before they're married. But man, I I got to believe that that's a from what I have learned about purity culture, basically through the podcast and in conversations with people that that has got to be so common that you have this higher arousal, especially for, especially for anyone who really internalized the morality of it. Right. Because so you, for some reason, what do you guys think about this? I'm sorry for vamping so much here, but what do you think about this? Why might it be that either partner in in the relationship would be so turned on 
by the kind of almost sex that they're having, you know, when, when they're not quite having it yet. I say that we, I say that we got married as virgins, like by the skin of our teeth, <laughs> you know, we just made it. Yeah. Uh, wh- why would it be that it would be so fun then? But then like at the moment of marriage, that's when it's supposed to switch and now it's okay. But I've heard this many times before that that's when you get guilty and you get the weird feelings. Uh, okay, Joanne, I see you have your hand raised. I have a theory about yes. why that is. And I think it has everything to do with foreplay. Because one of the things that we found in our survey is that women who do not orgasm frequently report that their husbands don't do enough foreplay, which makes complete sense. Because right. if you think about the sort of things that are going to get women aroused and then also the things that are going to bring them to climax, we found that only 30% of women who orgasm reliably can orgasm through intercourse alone. Right. Yeah. And that's something and, I've heard elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's not <laughs> a lot of our findings. I tell people it's just health class, the book. Right. So I think <laughs> that what you're doing when you're making out before you're married, it's just a heck of a lot of foreplay. Right. And women it get is eternal, really never-ending foreplay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then when they get married, right. they just rush to the intercourse because that's what right. is portrayed as sex. That's the definition of sex that mm-hmm. we have in the evangelical subculture. Is it's just intercourse, and yeah, you know that you've done because the he's, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's a rush to go directly to intercourse, and I think that, that I admit can, I was pretty curious. On that wedding night. I, I mean, I, I I actually, I've said this before, I regret not hanging out with our friends who traveled up to Seattle mm. from California. Mm. I now wish that that's what we had done that night and then had sex like in Mexico on our honeymoon or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I, we did, we messed that up. But I, but like, I don't, I mean, I understand where I was coming from. I was a repressed evangelical boy and I had been waiting, you know, 26 years for this moment. But yeah, isn't there also a thing where there is a little bit of a there's such a build up in this messaging to marital sex that then if it's if it's at all a letdown it's like a real letdown whereas if you're just an average teenager and you just watch movies and TV shows about your first time you might get the impression that it's going to be kind of bad like that that's the impression i get from watching media from like fairly honest media about sex is like it's going to be kind of bad for a while and then it'll get better as opposed to, Oh man, just wait for that wedding night. You guys, that is when God's promises will really become true for you. Yeah. I think that what we're told is just like what you're saying is we're, we're given a prosperity, like a sexual prosperity gospel. Right. But yes. then what happens yes. is like what, and that's, I don't think that's my, I think that's, I think I stole that from Rachel Joy Welcher. I'll be completely honest. I think, I think I took Great that term. from Caitlin Beatty. Caitlin Beatty. Yeah. Caitlin yeah. They all say this great stuff Caitlin. about it. Um, but great. we've been given this idea that if we do everything perfectly, then we will get perfect sex. Right. But we're doing, we're given that message without being told, you know, foreplay is a thing. 
And also, you know, mm-hmm. when you're making out and then you're like, oh, dear, we just did sexual things, but at least I still have not been penetrated. Um, that's because you've been doing making out and touching each other for six hours. And then, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. It felt good. You've been doing foreplay for six hours. Like <laughs> you're basically sting exactly. doing tantric. Like that's pretty much it. And so what we've said. You've been practicing tantra. You didn't even know well, it. And what we've said in, in our book is like the problem is that we tell everyone wait until you are married to have sex but we don't define sex something that is good for the woman because we see sex as penetrative intercourse where he just kind of moves around until he's done and it doesn't matter how she felt they still had sex right (laughs) whereas if we tell people instead of wait to have sex until you're married if we tell them you know wait to have sex until you're married and you're begging for it kind of thing like wait Mm -hmm. to have sex until you're married and you're really aroused You know, like if we tell that to couples, you know, if they decide to wait until marriage to have sex, then at least it won't be this awkward, painful first wedding night thing when you're just exhausted and you just have the most stressful week of your life. And yeah, maybe it is when you're in Mexico and you've both been just making out and enjoying each other for four days already. Right. Like that's the kind of story we can create if we have an honest conversation about arousal, about foreplay, about women's sexual response. But all those things are not talked about. And that's what we've been wanting to change. And that's why this emphasis on understanding what causes sexual pain has actually also unlocked the idea of what causes sexual pleasure. Because mm. in essence, it's just do the opposite. Right. The The first contact thing is so interesting because it makes me think of cigarettes. I don't know if you guys have seen this research, but like there's a really high correlation between if you enjoyed or hated your first cigarette and then if mm. you become addicted to smoking or not. Mm. That it's like a like a 60 percent or something like a lot of it is explained by that first cigarette. Of course, there's some stuff that goes into that with your biology and if your parents smoke, whatever. But that like there is obviously something very formative about that first experience. And that's probably similar psychologically to other things that happen routinely like sex. Let's keep going with some findings here. So there's one that is that leads or is correlated to. A lack of trust in husbands. Yes, there is. And this one might sound like it's a no-brainer. But here, here is it. This is the one where wives should have frequent sex with their husbands to keep them from watching porn is a belief mm-hmm. as well as all men struggle with lust. It is every man's battle. Women have a hard time trusting their husbands around other women or trusting that their husbands don't look at other women when they believe these messages. So for instance, women who believe that all men struggle with lust, it is every man's battle are 135% more likely to be frequently afraid that their husbands will look at porn or other women, which of course should be a no brainer, right? If you believe that all men struggle with lust is every man's battle, of course, you're going to be more worried about it. And so don't worry. I know what a lot of people who are skeptics are going to say, but what if it's just the women whose husbands are ogling other women and are watching porn who say this? Well, we actually found that for messages about men's struggle with lust, if women were taught it when they were in high school and in youth group, it actually still affected their trust in their husbands today. So a lot of these women, you know, some of these women may have married guys they met in high school and they, who they knew when they got that teaching, but I'm, be- I'm willing sure. to bet that a lot of them didn't. And so we're teaching young girls messages that are then leading to less trust in their marriages, which means these guys can't even catch a break before they've even given themselves a chance to prove, no, I'm not going to look at other women. I only have eyes for you. These girls are told that's impossible. Interesting. Yeah, another thing that we found 
with these teachings is it actually there are still correlations if you don't believe the teaching currently but are taught it by a trusted spiritual authority. And so what we're finding, actually, we have a launch team Facebook group where we're chatting through the book with folks who are um, looking through the book before it comes out. And it's been really interesting to see what is kind of bubbling to the surface repeatedly in the group. And one of the things that has come up over and over again is women saying, you know, I didn't think this book was for me because I feel like, you know, my marriage is pretty good. I don't believe toxic stuff I've pretty well deconstructed at this point and they read the book and they went oh my goodness I have had some of the best conversations with my husband because yeah I don't believe this stuff but I realized it was still affecting me and let me tell you I have found that to be true in my own life I have found that writing this book has been such a healing and freeing thing for me and my hope is that reading it can be a similar experience for many women Oh, that makes sense. I mean, if uh, spending two, two to four years, depending on which podcasts you want to count in this world of sort of D and reconstruction of faith uh, has taught me anything. One of the one of the clearest things it's taught me is that this stuff has power Uh and it has way more power than you think most of the time. Uh, And like we were saying earlier, there, there aren't all that many venues to process it out unless you happen to have a good friend or spouse that really likes talking about this stuff and like brings it up all the time spontaneously. You just don't talk through it. It doesn't come up in your day, but this stuff, especially, you know, when you're taught it while your brain is still forming and making all its connections, it's very formative years, especially these youth group years. There's just so much capacity for good or harm because this stuff can just sink in in such a deep way. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things we wanted to to deal with was this idea that this stuff can sink in deep, but we have to fight to get away from it, right? We have to deconstruct right. and reconstruct. I love how you said that reconstruct idea where we actually did this in every chapter. At the end of each of them, we we talk about the belief and we say, instead of saying this, say this instead, right? So awesome. for instance, instead of boys will c- push girls' sexual boundaries, instead of that, say, you are capable of resisting temptation and you are responsible to not violate anyone else's boundaries. You know, instead of saying women just don't have that need for sex, say, if your wife doesn't have a libido, figure out why, you know, like let's, let's talk about this in a more nuanced way. Instead of saying men want sex, say, you know what? People want sex. Let's just, let's talk about this in a new way. And I think that our stats really show why that's important. And that's what our hope is for the book. Not just that we tear down all this stuff, not just that we get, you know, to call out these books are saying harmful stuff, not just because we're addressing the powers that be, but because we're hoping to give couples a way forward. We're hoping to offer freedom to those who have been afflicted by harmful teachings. And we're hoping to give people a better idea of what it means to be Christ to each other and to experience, you know, true intimacy and true love in a humanizing, dignifying, and respectful way, which frankly have not been the three words that I would use to describe sex advice in the evangelical church thus far. Well, you know what, guys, this seems like a good place to end. That's a fantastic, I don't know, inspirational way to go out here. And I don't, and I want people to read the book. So let's not give any more of the book away. I think that the three of us will be in communication over, especially some of this nerdy stuff. And I look forward to that. And I am so stoked that you guys wrote this book and that it's getting out there. It comes out in March. Is that right? Yes, it comes out March 2nd. We're so close. 
Yes, as of okay. time recording this, it's, uh, you know. As, yeah, so uh, it came out eight weeks ago. Yay! <laughs> Or so by the time this comes out, I'm, I'm quite a few uh, quite a few weeks ahead. So it should be out by now. And of course, there will be a, a link to the book on Amazon, and as well as the to love vacuum and honor, to love vacuum, honor love and honor. vacuum, yeah, love honor and vacuum uh, blog and, and website where people can find your guys's work and and get in touch if they want. I'm sure. Uh, anything else you guys want to leave us with? I think that the book really, honestly is a call to embrace the abundant life in Christ. We were talking a little bit about the kind of sin management gospel stuff. And I think this really is about having a big vision of who Jesus is. And the idea that we're just supposed to do enough good now so that we earn our spot in heaven, or that if we believe these things, that then we, we have glory ahead of us. Misses the point that, Jesus calls us to the abundant life now. And we see that in how Jesus treats people. He doesn't go up to the paralytic and say, Hey, you know, dude, if you'd suffer a little more, you'll get a bigger heavenly reward. So I could heal you, but I won't. He goes, you know what? Your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk because the kingdom is for right now. And our hope and prayer is that this book And the conversations that we're hoping to spur with it give folks a picture of the abundant life that's available in Christ and that we can see a full picture of the gospel as opposed to a cheap counterfeit that puts people in bondage. It's about flourishing and flourishing is another good word for when the kingdom of heaven is on earth among human beings, Mm -hmm. uh, which is in the Lord's prayer. So Thank you guys so much. I I had a lot of fun. I apologize to listeners if eh, eight or nine minutes of that hour and a half was not to your uh, level liking or your level of, of granularity. But thank you for uh, putting up with my interests as a as a budding researcher. And yeah, I'm just I, I can't say enough how stoked I am that you did the real evidential research work. That is the thing that I will be buzzing about for the rest of the mm-hmm. night tonight that like, oh, they actually went and found it out. Like that just has me stoked. And I I will be looking at this research uh, for, I think, years to come and referencing it and all that. So thank you guys thank for doing you. that. And tell your mom, Rebecca, thank you for putting her career and reputation on the line in order to do that, because that is also not an easy thing. And I greatly respect her as well. For oh, that. we all do. She's awesome. Mm-hmm. I guess she could listen to this and I, she might hear me say that. But if she doesn't listen, I won't be offended. Tell her. Okay. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to Joanna and Rebecca for joining me. I've got links to the book, The Great Sex Rescue, and the blog, To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, in the show notes. Thanks to Josh Gilbert, my editor. He is also available for more editing work, and his email is in the show notes. Also, there is a link to the new Havana Swim Club stuff. You are listening to the second single, Yeah, which came out a couple weeks ago. And uh, there's a link to SoYourDeconstructing.com. Some stuff that Sari Martin Concepcion and I put together for newly deconstructing Christians 
And I've got my Twitter and Instagram there if you want to follow me. Instagram is like half my son Soren. And Twitter is, I don't know, Twitter is silly. And it should be silly. And that, and I enjoy it these days because I treat it mostly like a silly thing. But it's also sometimes really good for uh, crowdsourcing ideas. I don't know why I'm talking about this. Let's end this thing. See you guys next week. Thank you. Yeah.